maybe just building a team because you see a bunch of other people doing it. Maybe that's not the right play. Maybe you just need to sell real estate. And, and that's okay. You know, there's definitely no shame in just saying, hey, you know what? I'm not really equipped to manage people. I don't really want to have all this responsibility of generating leads and doing this and training people and taking, you know, calls from people at 11 o'clock at night when they aren't sure what to do. Um, so, you know, sometimes that it's okay if the answer is, you know, maybe this isn't for you. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions podcast, where industry leaders share their stories and offer tips and advice for real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Fidelity National Title in Tampa, Florida. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 180 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for telling a friend. And uh, I get to have some fun today. I am going to be talking to a guest that I, I just met for the first time a couple of weeks ago at Inman Connect in New York. I've known of him for a long time, but I found out something about him that's going to be tough for me to get away from. I get distracted easily by artists. Uh, I don't care what they're artists in, but people who are very creative. And wait till you hear what my guest for episode 180, Lee Adkins of Amplified Solutions Consulting. Wait till we get to what he did when he was younger. It's going to be fun. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. So before I jump into that section I so weirdly teased, <laughs> I like to find out where people are from. Now, I know you're based in Atlanta now with your company, but yep. you grew up in Texas, I, somewhere in the Houston area, I think. So let's talk about... Talk about growing up in Texas, because that's... All right, perfect. We're going all the way back, huh? Absolutely. That's great. Cool. So yeah, I grew up in the Houston area, uh, actually about an hour south of Houston. Uh, it's a pretty small town. It's called Clute, Texas. And it was an interesting time to be in that part of Texas, because all the chemical companies, Dow and BASF and all these companies were actually building plants down there um, on the coast. And so it attracted this really interesting group of engineers and all these people who are, you know, college educated uh, to go to this super small little area, kind of in nowhere, Texas. And it was a really, uh, I don't know if idyllic is quite the right word, but it was definitely a bit of a master planned uh, city or two with a lot of uh, recently college educated folks coming in there. So we had really great um, our education programs there were really great, great sports teams, great music education. It was a really interesting time to, to grow up in a, in a small town in Texas. The other appeal um, is that we were about 10 to 15 minutes away from the beach. So didn't grow up on the beach, but uh, you know had access to just take a quick drive down and, and hang out at the beach. So it was, uh, it was pretty great. I think like a lot of things, you don't always appreciate it and enjoy it as much when you're young and you look back on it and go, wow, that was a, that was a pretty great way to grow up. A couple of questions. The beach would be kind of Galveston area if I'm thinking yeah. my geography, right? Okay. Yep, exactly. It's right down the coast from Galveston. So if you were at Galveston, you could literally drive down the beach and, and be Surfside, Texas is, is the actual beach that's there. And I got to ask you this question. I, I'm a kind of a sports guy. I know you are too. Um, the, the high school football like thing that Texas is all about, even down in yeah. Clute, that was a big deal. Yep. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's still Texas. It's still Friday Night Lights and uh, the full ride. As as we'll dig into a little bit, I was on kind of the nerdier side of uh, 
of all that growing up. But yeah, definitely big on on all the sports. We actually part of the claim to fame. Nolan Ryan was actually from a uh, an adjoining town that we played in in a lot of sports. So nice. Got to uh, got to hang out with Mr. Ryan a little bit. Nice. Let's let's talk about the nerdy side, Lee, because. I'm just going to guess it involved music at a fairly young age because I, as we kind of follow your journey, someone who reaches the level you do with an instrument had to start very young. Am I right there? Yeah. So I had had a really good run uh, in music as a professional musician, ultimately. But going back to the education system, just had really strong programs in school. And I, I, in middle school, I got into the band playing the trumpet. And, you know, like most people that excel at certain activities, there's always a there's always a great coach or a great teacher or a great band director. And we just had this really, really strong band program where we were plugged into a lot of different types of music. And, you know, when you're surrounded by other good players, it makes you better. You're just really, really lucky, you know, I think to be involved in, in a good and I did play some sports and I played some some fairly successfully and and some not so successfully, but really, you know, get into that band program um, in middle school was really, really pivotal. And and I had done music when I was younger. Uh, When I say done music, you know, we go back and you see pictures of me making a drum set out of some toys or or playing on a keyboard that, uh, you know, took some double A battery back then it was kind of a different, different game for, for, you know, electronic musical instruments. But yeah, just really found a love for music and, and was encouraged in that in every way. And of course, you know, when I got into high school, we did marching band in the, the 100 degree, 98 relative humidity heat and pretty successfully, you know, competed at a really high level in marching band. I also played trumpet in the symphony orchestra and in the jazz band. Um, so I was pretty much full on, full on band nerd. Let's, well, so I'm going to talk about that. I know the the music that you played as we'll call it a young adult and into adulthood. But what what were the instruments you were playing in middle school and in marching band? Yeah, so trumpet. I played trumpet all throughout that. Pretty good. I don't know. I was good at bragging on myself, but definitely had some 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 success and was in some of the top programs and really did a lot with that. So my junior year, I think in high school, I started transitioning to playing the electric bass. Uh, I'd had a mentor of sorts or a gentleman that played the bass that I was, you know, connected with, but just took a minute to kind of seep in. And I was lucky enough to find some guys that that kind of had a band together. You know, the bass player is always the one missing from the band, right? Because everybody wants to play guitar or drums or be the singer. So it's pretty easy to find work as a bass player. That's uh, you're you're definitely in demand. But just started transitioning to that. And it's really interesting. There's a lot of famous bass players who actually started out as trumpet players, Flea being one of them. There's a number of trumpet players that all successfully transitioned to bass. So did both towards the end of high school and, um, you know, both being playing trumpet and bass. And I just, you know, being in a really kind of classically trained environment, um, maybe we'll dive into this a little bit later, but I definitely had a pretty good grasp on a lot of instruments in general. So you kind of get the core skills and translating them to a different instrument doesn't necessarily, it's not a huge leap necessarily. Okay. Now that said, <laughs> that said, let's be clear. I don't have a lot of mu- natural musical talent. I know lots of people that do. I definitely worked pretty hard for mine. So, okay. 
it's you know in middle school I played the bass clarinet. So in my mind, I had you playing a lot of bass lines. You know, you're the tuba right. or something deeper right. that that, that right. pulled you into that bass guitar, but obviously not. Yeah, there was no um, there was no logical reason other than that there was just an opportunity to play some bass with with some some other people. So <laughs> I was like, yep. Yeah, I'll tell you what, my wife is well aware of how much I dig the bass guitar in music because I'm constantly, I don't want to say singing or humming, but I'm, I'm pointing out the bass line. I say, you hear that, right? And she goes, not till you told me. I go, you got to right. listen for that because it's nothing without that down there. It's got to be there. Right. So it's magical. And as we get into some of, um, you know, how some of this starts to translate into business stuff, you know, I definitely... I, I am a bass player. My personality is that of a bass player. I mean, I like supporting the group. I like making everybody sound good. You know, for those who don't know, you know, in, in a musical scenario, you know, when the bass player is bad, people just go, wow, this band is terrible. Right. <laughs> and when the bass player is great, you know, then somebody, nobody is ever like, oh my goodness, this is the best bass player I've ever seen. No, they give um, all the credit to the guitar and the singer right, and the drums. Right. Yeah. But, that, but that's okay. I mean, that suits my personality where I don't need to be, you know, the front guy, but um, I'm happy when the whole, the whole group sees success. So it, it's funny how that's, you know, I don't know if, what, if that's chicken or egg, <laughs> you know, I don't yeah. know if that's, if that's cause or effect, but uh, for what it's worth, it's worked out. It's worked out pretty well. So let's, let's touch quickly on, touring with the band soup so i mean this has got to be i'm sure there are stories you can tell us on the air and maybe some you can't so <laughs> let's go with right. talk about those yeah. so so and, and i'll actually uh i'll take it back a split second more so i went to college i went to texas tech and i decided that i wanted to try something else i had been so immersed in music i thought you know what i'm just like there's maybe i do need to just try something else like music has been great i, I really enjoyed it so I actually enrolled in school uh, as an electrical engineering computer science major when I went to school and I loved it. I calculus like doesn't exist in my brain. I mean, I cannot do calculus. It's pretty funny to be top of your engineering class and you can't pass calculus. So started, you know, not surprisingly, the music thing had, of course, started creeping back and somebody's like, oh, you play the bass. I'd met this guy freshman year in college, hadn't even started classes yet. He had another Rush t-shirt walking down the hall. And I was like, oh my goodness, you like Rush? He's like, yeah, I play guitar. I'm like, hey, I play bass. So famous, famous last words there. Right. Um, but said and done, uh, I spent three years at Texas Tech, of course, got back into playing music, was really on the brink of just realizing, you know, this music's really where it's at for me. And was either going to transfer to University of Texas in Austin, which clearly had a great music scene back then and clearly still does. And that same friend I had met my freshman year um, in college had moved back to Atlanta a couple of years before. He grew up here, actually, had moved back to this area and was playing in a band that, lo and behold, needed a bass player right around that exact same time. And, and um, so I got the call. He came out to visit me in Texas and played me some of what was, you know, played me some widespread panic, some of the, the music that was going on in this area at the time. And, you know, I was, it was, uh, it was too good an opportunity to pass up. So, uh, you know, the short version is I dropped out of college and uh, moved to Atlanta to play in a rock band. <laughs> That's great. I love it. So how, how long were you with, how long was this your career? Let's call it. 
So Soup had a good run. Well, that there's there's some asterisks on you know how long it was my career. But I, I moved out here in '96 to Atlanta right before the Olympics. So full immersion in the Olympics. We're playing a couple of gigs a day during the Olympics, you know, all across Atlanta. Um, and then just started touring. In fact, my first gig with the band, I flew out on my spring break before I officially moved. Uh, we actually played a gig at Vanderbilt opening for uh, the Violent Femmes and David Grisman. So it was wow. a pretty uh, it's a pretty solid open, pretty right. pretty solid first gig with those guys. So uh, we toured pretty extensively up and down the East Coast. Uh, we stayed mostly on you know on the east side of the country between 96 and 01 and we did about probably between 130 150 shows a year so that's uh it's pretty intense you're living in a lot of a lot of bars and driving around a in a in a van with a bunch of dudes <laughs> so <laughs> and, and really i mean we had real pretty good success i mean you can definitely find uh some of the music on itunes and spotify we did four cds one of which was a little more of an ep a little more of a shorter kind of you know, full full disclosure, kind of a last ditch effort to uh, get a record deal in that in that time. Sure, but you know, really ran up and down the coast. I mean, from West Palm to Boston, and just just rocked it out. It, it, it's interesting. I love telling people this story, even related to real estate, because that was a time where even email wasn't. You couldn't assume that everyone had email. So we would stamp and sticker postcards. Like, hey, we're coming to Winston Salem on the fifth of next month. Uh, we hope to see you there. So it was, uh, you know, it it was old school. <laughs> you, this part of your life doesn't kind of end when you decide to venture off into you, you know, examine your entrepreneurial spirit. You kind right. of stay in the music industry before real estate comes calling. So let's talk about that transition from playing in a band to what you did in the industry and then off to real estate. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, after you tour for five or six years and you kind of say, Hey, like you've had some success, but you know, and everybody else in the band, they've all been very successful. Everybody is doing pretty amazing, fantastic things. I won't go into any specific details for anybody, but everyone really came out of that experience um, and went on to, to do some, some really pretty impressive things. So, you know, for me, I pivoted as that was kind of winding down into some music education. Um, at first, it was teaching at a private school, um, just teaching straight music at a private school. And as part of that, um, I actually started a, a band program, like an actual concert band program at a private school. And it was such an amazing journey of, I guess, kind of like I mentioned before, of like, hey, you don't really know how to play the flute, but like this book tells you where to put your finger and then you blow in this side. and. Uh, yeah. Hey, good job, kid. You know how to play the flute now. <laughs> so pretty, pretty good uh, go at teaching music, but not hard to figure out that the money was more so in the private lesson business. And so because I was multi-instrumental, you know, I could teach piano, I could teach guitar, really, you know, all the kind of main things. I mean, the only thing I really probably never taught, I don't think I ever taught any vocals. That's not really my thing, but you know, and, and I think on some level, it's also just being a good, I don't know if encourager is even a word, but, you know, it's not so much that I have this magical talent of playing that instrument. It's just helping somebody down the path of discovering it themselves. And so, you know, grew a, a, a music lesson business where I had multiple teachers. I think at one point I had six or seven teachers uh, working with me and, and 
we had a location, but we quickly learned that people would pay more money for us to come to them. So uh, shifted to that model pretty fast. I'm like, why am I paying for this building when people will pay more money for us to just show up? You know, again, it was a little too early, I think, that I got into that because we were mailing out invoices to people. There was no square. There were, we couldn't even email invoices because just not everybody had email at that point in time. Right. So, but had a great run at that. And then that, interestingly enough, due to my band roots, I was introduced to some people that were starting a rock and roll camp. And it was really pretty interesting because they introduced me to them, really hit it off with them super quick and you know, realized very quickly, I was probably one of the few people in the world that was organized had actually toured in a rock and roll band that had taught with kids and that could actually communicate with parents and other people and, and even manage people to, you know, a reasonable degree. So really went headlong into this camp. It was called camp jam. Um, it sort of kind of still exists. It's ownership has changed a bit, but then this was 2004 for reference. So I started in with these guys, I guess in 03 for the camp season in 04 and it was ultra successful. I mean, it was beyond anything, I think, any certainly what I expected. Tremendous press coverage. I mean, we had coverage on NBC Nightly News and New York Times and People Magazine. I mean, it was it was wild. <laughs> it was it was pretty fantastic. So and we had only set up to run in Atlanta that year and very quickly realized that we wanted to grow it. So the following year we opened in Dallas and Houston. Thankfully, I knew a bunch of people in Dallas and Houston from growing up, you know, or, or being at school in, in, uh, in Lubbock at Texas Tech. Um, and then the year after that, we expanded that into 10 markets. So pretty wow. much most of the major markets, again, sort of East Coast, you know, Orlando, Chicago, uh, St. Louis, Cleveland. But yeah, really had a great run. And I was pretty largely wholly responsible for scaling that business into those other markets. I had a you know, a small team I worked with, um, we'll get to a little bit later, somebody I worked with there actually still works with me in the business now. And it's, it's pretty fantastic to have that, that sort of longevity with somebody. Yeah, really great experience. The best part of that is I got to actually play with a bunch of pretty famous musicians from the 80s, pretty much guys I listened to on the radio growing up as part of that group. So that was just, you know, I thought that was the be all end all of like, okay, now I made it. Forget the record deal. Like, this <laughs> right. is cool. <laughs> that's great the, the the attendees of the of the camps were, were these adults who are just reliving so, that kind of, yeah, so we had a, camp kind of a thing we had a couple arms of that so initially it was just for kids it was kids yeah. 11 to 17 very quickly learned there were a lot of uh adult players who really wanted to have this experience especially with you know the famous rock star guys right so we did pull together um, an adult rock and roll fantasy camp. And, um, you know, same thing. I, I ran that and I got to uh, also play bass with that same group um, of guys. And it was, it was really amazing. I mean, it truly was like playing in a cover band with the guys on the record. You know, it was, wow. it was, uh, it was really fantastic. But yeah, so we had that. We actually also had a corporate team building arm where we kind of did the same thing, but we would travel uh, to, you know, a corporation. I don't know if I can, say any specific names, but we went you know, a couple of well-known companies. We went and did like a day or two event where we would teach them how to play guitar. And of course we detuned the guitar so they could just, you know, hold their finger across it and play and, you know, would double the drummer. We'd have a real drummer playing along with, with, uh, 
you know, their drummer for a day. But, um, but yeah, it was really, it was pretty fantastic. I mean, the experience, you know, to reflect on all the experiences I've had through that, it, it's pretty amazing. You know, you don't always appreciate it while it's going on. Well, a lot of that, I guess I did, but you know, it is pretty, pretty fabulous to look back on it. Um, you know, think about all the, all the journeys. Right. And it's so simple as you've kind of alluded to uh, a couple of times to see the way that this experience absolutely transfers over to what you're doing in real estate. Uh, it's just right. right there in front of you. Right. Right. Yeah. It really is amazing. I mean, I wish I could tell you that it was some magical master plan that I, uh, <laughs> that I you know, knew since infancy, but uh, didn't, didn't quite go down that way. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about how does real estate get in the picture? Yeah. So I bought a house in 2004, right around the time the camp was kind of ramping up, had a tremendous experience and just thought, you know what? So, you know, as far as the camp kind of ending, for lack of a better term, I just, I, I saw it going a bit of a different direction. And, you know, I'd really, and something else that, that's pervasive in my life is that I enjoy building things and creating things. I also don't necessarily want to just in a rote way kind of maintain them. It's an interesting blessing and a curse. I mean, you know, you certainly want to be focused and do, do, do good things and keep doing them. But, you know, it was just time for a change. And so I was lucky to be in an opportunity where I could just jump full time into real estate. So I, I got my license and jumped full-time into sales, had a good run as an agent, you know, did that from 06 until 2012. So about six years um, as an agent, really loved it, but I loved helping people. It was more about helping people. I was never really motivated by the money or any of that. It was just, I think more of the puzzle of all of it. I liked helping people kind of crack the code on what they wanted and what they were looking for and how to get it and what all that looked like. And you know, around 2010, at least in the Atlanta market, everything started being foreclosures and multiple offers. And hey, we found this one on Zillow. Can we go see it today? And just didn't really fit my MO. You know, I was the guy that was like, this weekend, we're going to go out. We're going to see these five. You're going to go home and think about it. And then we'll write up an offer on one, you know, the next day. And uh, it was pretty clear that that was the industry was changing and it was never going to go back to being that. So I just started kind of putting out the word to some close friends that, you know, hey, I love the real estate and I love this, but, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's more to life than just doing it uh, in a one-on-one -on -one basis. And, you know, very quickly, as I started talking to people, people were like, wait, you used to do what? You used to hire people and grow a company and <laughs> like, you know how to do all that? And most people didn't know. They just thought I was like the kid real estate agent in the, in the office. And so just started talking with a team uh, that were two ladies that I knew pretty well from a prior brokerage, or I knew a bit from a prior brokerage who had started a team, but you know, quite honestly, and they wouldn't mind me saying this, they'd agree, it wasn't much of a plan. They really, they had a couple of people, but there weren't consistent meetings. You know, no one was really using a CRM. There was no process for turning in contracts or doing anything uh, you know, really of that nature. And so the timing was just right, you know, just for me to come along and say, hey, I, I know how to do all that. And what I don't know how to do, I'll figure out and just make it happen. But I was really lucky to find that opportunity and be able to wholly come out of production because I have a strong belief that you, you really can't you really can't do operations really, really well and be in production. It's just 
It's not that it's not even that it's not a skill set that doesn't. I think you can have both skill sets. I just think it's two different frames of mind, so you right. can't do them at the same time. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to do both well simultaneously. Right. 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 I mean, think about it. One, your job is to to ready, set, go whenever somebody else needs you, and the other one is to be focused and to come up with a plan. So, right. like on some level, that's just you know, there's no Venn diagram there. Right. <laughs> They're not overlapping. Um, you know, and just had really good success with that team. I mean, as far as identifying new people to join, as far as like, what's the plan? I think said and done, we ultimately tripled the production if I, somewhere in that, in that nature. But, but also just, you know, culture is a bit of a, an overused word these days, but certainly, you know, it felt like a team. It felt like a family. It felt like there was a plan and a, and a, you know, a reason that we were doing all this. Right. So, and I still do work with them actively um, to this day. Certainly, you know, the good news is the plan is intact. Part of the success is that we haven't changed anything major in probably three or four years, but it's also not magic. It just doesn't operate itself. I mean, you have to be on the lookout for changes in the market. You have to be looking for new tools that, that do make sense to add, not just jumping from thing to thing. And, you know, people need attention. You need to, to, you know, be coaching people, checking in with people, making sure they have what they need. So, you know, there's no autopilot, but I think by the same token, if you're just changing stuff for the sake of changing it or changing stuff, you know, to, to, to keep your job, then uh, that's not really a good way to be either. So I, I do still work with them, but uh, part of what happened is the more I got into that role, and talk to other people, most notably people who already had teams or brokerages in, in most times in other markets, whether it's kind of from that Inman scene or from you know, traveling to other conferences or, or meeting other people. Everyone I talked to said, wait, what do you do? They're like, oh my, oh my goodness, I need a you. How, how do I get a you? And thus was born the idea of how, how could, how could we do this for other people? How could, you know, can you do it remotely? Do you help them find that person? Like, what does that all look like? And um, the short version of that story is, you know, after years and years of working with other people and trying to figure out things really kind of custom to them is that the, the Amplified Solutions company has really turned into a focus on helping people hire that person. And the best case scenario, we can kind of help that that person, that operations person or assistant or EA or whatever we call them in title, really do a great job running a team or a brokerage, usually boutique, because, you know, a lot of times, obviously, with franchises, people have a little more of a game plan or, uh, you know, some framework. You know, as you know, a lot of people started boutique brokerages a couple of years ago because they just they didn't want somebody else's name on their sign. And, you know, quite frankly, I think a lot of those people now are, are, um, they're looking for that help or, Hey, what is, what are our next steps or how do we take this to the next level? Um, and so that's where, uh, you know, this, this company can, can step in. So it's like we alluded to earlier, it's kind of like being that bass player, you know, it's kind of <laughs> like pushing the train forward without getting in the way, without needing the credit, but, uh, just making sure that everybody is, uh, you know, feeling good and doing the right things and all, all moving in a, a somewhat forward direction. <laughs> so, so really a consultancy, right? Helping, yes. helping uh, primarily boutique brokerages. And I love the fact that you're not only helping them find 
you know, even, maybe even recruit talent, but you're finding that person, you are creating the person that did what you did for your team. Is that, that's really what I'm hearing, right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I think what's interesting to me about it, and I know this isn't super scalable, but what's interesting to me about it is having a conversation with people about, you know, what are their strengths? What are they trying to do? You know, they're trying to build a saleable brand. Do they just want to be able to like hand this to their kid when their kid gets old enough? You know, do they, do they want to be an acquisition target? Like, what are we doing here? And then working backwards from that, because if you want to build a saleable business, you know, we need to really ratchet down a lot of, a lot of things here. We need to really have, you know, a a really operational database, you know, a written handbook, a written operations manual. I mean, you know, for better or worse, real estate is, is, you know, it's pretty easy to be a solopreneur. It's pretty easy to find a couple of people to kind of go on that journey with you, but it's really, really hard. In, a, in an industry of unlimited opportunity to really, something I say to people all the time, I'm like, you don't even need a good plan. You just need a plan. It literally doesn't matter on some level. I yeah. mean, you just need to, to have, have some guns and stick to them, you know? So, but yeah, to me, it's really important, the nuance of, you know, what is their skill set? Some right. people are tremendous. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of people that are great Real estate agents, you know, very often aren't necessarily great business owners. And so the question is, is that person somebody who can transition into a business owner? Or as I say to a lot of people, do they just need to keep paying for the party while we get somebody in there who's kind of more of the manager type person and can really help the agents get what they need, mm-hmm. um, you know, while that owner really just goes out and keeps selling real estate to, to help kind of fund the the mission here. So to me, it's exciting to have conversations about the nuance of, you know, what is that person's best role? And there's no, there's no one answer. You know, there's really, there's really no one right way, which is a blessing and a curse. So this question, it really kind of talks about the team versus brokerage play that I've heard a lot, even on recent episodes of the podcast, that, you know, creating a successful team can be very, profitable margins can be higher but right. opening a brokerage uh tends to be tougher uh, that that the margins are, are more narrow uh, it's a little bit different so i imagine you've helped people do both things what are like the key right. things you say to each yeah good question and and they are and and i wish i had a magical answer for why i honestly can't i mean i know why i guess on some core level but it does. I mean, it, it seems there's a very gray area in team and brokerage. And interestingly enough, I think we'll see them probably start to dance a little more towards each other. And I work with a number of people who actually operate a team within a brokerage. So they own the brokerage, but they have a team within that that's getting leads, that's getting some more specific training and, and a little more policy and procedure versus the brokerage model of just true independent contractors. But no, you're definitely right. I mean, margins are smaller than ever on the brokerage level. And on the team, you know, it's not uncommon for somebody to pay 50%, you know, 50 or 40% of their revenue uh, to the team. But again, I think the team, the team has a greater responsibility to the agent. You know, the team is, is basically, and I'm not saying that brokerages don't sell that they have the best leads, but 
you know, a team is really even more deeply responsible for nurturing an agent, in, in my opinion, versus at a brokerage level, you know, people really are even more so independent contractors and, and you know, they don't want to be told what to do for better or worse. Sometimes that just means they don't want to be accountable at all, but that's their prerogative. And that's potentially maybe why they got into industry in the first place. But it is, it's, it's a very interesting, you know, and honestly, I work with people, I probably shouldn't even say this out loud, but, you know, I work with some people who are a brokerage who should probably be a team and some people who are a team who might be better served as bridge. And quite frankly, I've also worked with people, some of whom even had existing teams where we said, you know what, like maybe just building a team because you see a bunch of other people doing it. Maybe that's not the right play. Maybe you just need to sell real estate. And, and that's okay. You know, there's definitely no shame in just saying, hey, you know what? I'm not really equipped to manage people. I don't really want to have all this responsibility of generating leads and doing this and training people and taking, you know, calls from people at 11 o'clock at night when they aren't sure what to do. So, you know, sometimes that it's okay if the answer is, you know, maybe this isn't for you, you know, clearly, especially in, in, in the age of social media, you know, everybody's killing it, right? Like everybody's team is the best. <laughs> Right. And everybody's brokerage is just knocking it out of the park. Nobody come, nobody posts on Instagram like, hey, we're bleeding agents. This is awesome. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, so I think that makes it even tougher because I think a lot of people think it is super sexy. And, um, you know, the people that are really out there doing it, um, you know, they, they know how hard it is. But again, they have a plan. They have a mission. They are, we're doing it. They have a strong why. They have, you know, hopefully the right skill set or they've at least hired the right people. And a lot of these people, I mean, as much as we intentionally hire these people for people, a lot of people do stumble into great hires, great operations people, great assistants. Give me the biggest mistake you see team leaders making. I think that if I had to pick one, it's very, it's very hard, especially for people, for team leaders that are still in production. I see a lot of them just kind of magically think that people who join them, new agents or not, are just going to kind of pick up some of the stuff by osmosis. I think they don't, and I get that it's not in their personalities to do this, but the most successful people that I've seen that come join a team are the people that, and I tell people this all the time, and it's amazing how many people don't do it, just do whatever you can to log time with that person you know, call them. And because the thing is, these people are not planners. They're not going to say, oh, I've got a listing appointment next week. You should join me. You know, call them in the morning, say, hey, what are you doing today? I'm going to go with you. Because what happens is you're building rapport with that person. You're hearing what they're saying in the appointment or on showings. And then you're all, but most importantly, you know, you're building that trust with them so that when a lead does come in that they can pass to you, they feel confident passing it to you. And I just, I, I could feel like I could scream that from the rooftops. And I just, I've taught so many people that, that don't do it. It really blows my mind. I mean, the key to a successful team is just building that rapport with whoever, a mentor, the owner, whoever that right person is. But, you know, too many people just join a team and they're like, oh, well, now I'm getting leads. and you know, I'm just going to call them. And if they don't want to get in the car right now, then, you know, maybe I'll call them a little bit later. And that's just, it's just not how the business works. 
Lee, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this up with the same question I've asked every guest since episode one uh, with Jay Thompson. And that is if you could give one piece of advice to a new agent, just getting started in the business, a solopreneur, what would it be? So the one piece of advice is really back to the plan thing. Just have a plan. If that plan is to call 10 people a day and call 10 people a day, that plan is to sit at your Starbucks and just meet people and, and tastefully bring up real estate, then do that. But you've got to consistently, you've got to be in the business and you got to position yourself to be in the business. And, and if I can do a 1A, sure. Uh, you have to spend time in houses with people. Like the only way you're going to get a check is if you have people that are going into houses with you. Ideally, people who you know are pre-qualified and and have have some money to spend. But um, you know, all this computer work, all this great stuff you can do online now, running Facebook ads, that's great. But if you're not actually logging hours with people in houses, then uh, you're probably not going to make any money. Lee, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? So I am pretty available on social media. I'm not a 24-hour-a-day social media person, but um, LinkedIn is great. Facebook is great. My last name is A-D-K-I-N-S, D as in dog. Um, and the company website is AmplifiedSolutions.com. And there's a bunch of resources there. And we even have a free hiring guide there. So if somebody's thinking about hiring and wants some... Uh, wants to dig a little more into that or kind of some do-it-yourself help, then uh, it's all right there. Lee, I thank you so much for your time today. I, you know, really, Anthony Malafronte is our connecting point, right? He's the one that said, yeah. you've got you've to gotta get Lee on the podcast. And he's, he's, he's been right on with a few guests and he's, he's killed it again. So I appreciate that. He's a great guy. And any recommendation from Anthony? And I'm so glad we connected. I don't know how it took this long, but uh, I'm glad that we did.